0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people.
3: The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The underlining issue for us is, and I quote two things. People say, what's an investigation? An investigation is to search for the truth in the interest of justice in accordance with the specifications of the law. And secondly, what we are as investigators is the collectors of facts. We collect the facts, whether it inculpates or exculpates an accused, we present all those facts to the court and it's the court's role to prove innocence or guilt, not ours. We just collect the facts and present it.
0: you may be aware that the alleged High Country murder trial of former Jetstar pilot Gregory Lynn is about to begin in the Supreme Court of Melbourne. Lynn stands accused of murdering elderly campers Russell Hill and Carol Clay in the Wollongatta Valley of Victoria's High Country in March 2020. We'll be bringing you special editions of Australian True Crime throughout the trial. But to help us prepare, we've enlisted an old friend who's been part of some of the biggest murder trials this country has ever seen, he was also our very first guest on Australian True Crime. He is former homicide detective Charlie bazina Charlie remains in very high demand both as a media commentator and as a private investigator. But he joins us today to talk about the process of taking a big homicide investigation to trial from the perspective of the detectives involved. Charlie will be joining us again for special comments as this trial goes on, and he's about to remind us he brings a wealth of experience to the table.
3: I joined as a seventeen-year-old in '72, and uh, I was uh, then was a general detective at a footscray uniform member at Western Suburbs. Then I started to, after about ten years to specialise. So I transferred to the internal investigations department for about six or eight months, running their surveillance uh, and investigation team there. And then I went to the drug squad for about three and a half years, running an investigation team and doing undercover work, buying drugs, and then went to the homicide squad where I found my niche. Spent 17 years there and loved every minute of it, along with four other colleagues of my ilk, uh, running teams of detectives, statewide responsibility.
0: Was a legendary period of time that the five of you running homicide, and I know that the five of you still, and all of you retired now, for some years. That all of you still hear from families.
3: Mm. Yeah, you you do, and even now, and that's after leaving, and and then they flowed on to doing what I'm doing now as a private investigator. So still dabble in that and in regard there because I'm very victim focused
0: speaking to families who've had that happen in their lives, family members of victims, they do oftentimes really bond with the detective, bond with their lead investigator in the best case scenario.
3: Yeah, very much so. Um, because that's why they cling to you. You know, Our relationship starts, so from a process of doing a homicide investigation, there's a process you do follow. You might spend five, 10, 15, whatever hours at the crime scene, processing the crime scene and the deceased, the crime scene tells you a story. The deceased tells you a story. People often ask me, well, why do you go and do postmortems? Because so much evidence can be gleaned from a postmortem and that's where you're going to get evidence about how the assault happened, the cause of death, the struggle, et cetera, et cetera, even from the close. So you're running that type of investigation there. Then after that's processed, your next step is going and spending a lot of time with the deceased family. Sitting in their lounge rooms, they've never had any interaction with police in the past. and This is the biggest thing. They've got a homicide detective on their doorstep giving them this horrific news and trying to explain to them the processes of what's involved in now. And we're going to try and and identify stuff. And then we start learning as much as we can about the deceased through the family. And they cling to you. And that relationship lasts for years and years and years. Because if we charge someone today, it's about 18 months to two years before we can go to trial. And we have ownership. And the only ownership that the families have is us. We, and how often is said that we, as investigators, represent the deceased. Because no one else does. And we're the ones that put that human face to the name. At the end of the day, the information for what we call the charge sheet for the accused is, you did murder one Charlie Bazzina. Well, Charlie is a person, but we put a face, we put a body, we put a life to that name to the jury and the courts because all they see is a name on a on a piece of paper. They don't see the, a picture of the deceased as they see the accused being interviewed on our audio, videotapes.
0: You have to make them really care, right, because yeah. the defence is going to try and make them really care about the defendant, about the alleged offender. They're going to say this was his childhood, this was his background, this is why if you find him guilty, they're thinking possibly sentencing and all of that. So they're trying to really humanise the alleged offender. So you need to equally humanise the victim.
3: Yeah, but if, as you've said, every day the trial starts, they're looking at the accused person. For me, I would love to see an easel with a picture of the deceased in life. Because that's what it's all about. That's what the jury should be seeing every day, not the face of the accused person alone. There should be an an easel on the other side of the court and they can look at that and humanise it and say, yeah, this is what it's all about. This This is the allegation that the accused has killed that lady or that man or that kid. I can relate to that person. And people will look at it and they can say, well, that's what this is all about. It's not just a name because they... You do lose sight of the fact, out of sight, out of mind, but not out of sight, out of mind as the accused. So the empathy, it gets a bit of like a Stockholm syndrome where they start getting empathy to the accused person because they're going in as what we say, clean skin, and they're looking at this guy and people are saying, Well, he's got a nice face. I can't see him doing this horror that the police are alleging. And you know, how are they supporting it? We're going to question it. But the is in their face every day. And, uh, you know, we sit there, and I used to do quite often. Even though I'm not going to give evidence in the brief of evidence, and because I'm the face of the investigation, because of our sta- doing the stand ups at the crime scene, you got that profile. So it's good for me to be seen in court, sitting next to the deceased family, and and you can see the jury look at me, and they I say, "Ah, oh, that must be the family of the deceased." So we start we start humanising it from that point. And then you're supporting the, the family is saying, well, okay, look, tomorrow the pathologist is going to give evidence and uh, they're going to be quite descriptive in the injuries, the fact of um, how it happened or whether she was raped or whatever the case may be. I'm just warning you because you cannot show any emotion. You cannot sit here. If you, if you can't take it emotionally, I'm going to have to ask you to stay outside the court. So you warn them. And this is where it's so important when I to say to my young detectives, You've got to be as honest as you can with the deceased family because if you don't and they learn about something at a trial that we didn't tell them, you know... Oh, I
0: can't imagine how devastating, yeah.
3: And and one of the issues is we're in the lounge room and as you'd appreciate human nature, say, well, did did she suffer? And you can say, well, no, she didn't suffer quite honestly because your experience in doing postmortems and the likes that when someone is stabbed there's no pain as such because the adrenaline is overtaking them. And then they slowly bleed out. And I said, no, look, um, the loss of blood, and your daughter went to unconsciousness and she died. Oh, that's all I want to know, Charlie, if she suffered. You know what? I don't need to hear anymore. I'll go out. You talk to my husband. And then we sit there and say, I will be as honest with you as you want me to be. I'm not going to hold anything back. You're entitled to know exactly because if I don't tell you today, this is the day after your your loved one's been killed. You're going to hear it at the trial. So, well, I'm holding nothing back.
0: And imagination is usually worse than reality. That's
3: right. And then you got the then you got to balance that against regional investigations in the in the country, because the rumor mill just takes over. And I sit inside say to the families in the country areas and say, well, look. If you hear anything, any any gossip, any stuff that you're not happy with, please ring me. They, the family, get supportive. I oh, look, Charlie, I know you're busy. I don't really want to annoy. You. I said, please. I don't want it to fester. I don't want you to worry about it. if you've heard something on the grapevine in this country town. As happens, it'll happen all the time. They'll either malign your son or daughter. Charlie, I'm hearing that my son was involved in drugs. Well, I can tell you that all our investigation shows that he wasn't. That's that's malicious gossip. But don't sit on there. Please come and ask me. Just it's, We're a phone call away. I don't care what time of day it is. Just ring us. So that's the relationship and the trust you then build. And one of the heart-wrenching ones is the murder of a um, a sex worker, Kelly Hodge. She's found in Mickleham Road, stabbed to death. And to uh, cut a long story short, one of my detectives um, we were able to charge the offender probably 18 months, two years later. But the fact that we were putting in, and there's a, in in those days, a prostitutes cooperative down in St Kilda. Yeah. And they become their own police force and scutter crawlers be mindful of this. Anyway, after we did, got the um, arrest and conviction, we got this beautiful card from all the sex workers thanking us for caring. Yeah. Heart-wrenching stuff.
0: Yeah, especially given their attitude usually to police. It is a great moment when police can bridge a gap like that, I always think. very much so. What about in a case when you feel as though you have put a really solid brief of evidence forward and you've not got a conviction? Like, how does that happen?
3: Well, a lot of times, uh, most times, probably from circumstantial evidence. I've had a couple, I had the uh, RSPCA officer down at um, Mortlake, Stuart Fairley. Uh, and then I had another one, the uh, millionaire, um, Slavic Ramshin. The Jackie Ramshin case, there was um, a lady called uh, Jackie Merton. She was a game show host, model on the Wheel of Fortune. She was 40 years of age. She married a uh, Russian developer, Slavic Ramshin. They lived in Domain Road, South Yarra. They had two children. At the time of her going missing, the youngest one was about four, I think, four or five, and the other one was about. 10 or so. And there was a volatile marriage. A lot of family violence involved that she was assaulted. She was a devoted mother to her mother. She would always ring mum, never miss a birthday, send flowers, this type of thing. So the marriage was on the rocks quite a bit. And um, Slavic was a very domineering uh, Russian uh, type of person, multi-millionaire. So they got to a stage where, you know what, we're going to go our separate ways. But then they had to be separated for 12 months, not living under the same roof. So she moved into the pool room, which was a separate room near the pool in the mansion. But during that separation, she had a um, a fling with a barrister. And uh, they were going to take the kids to um, the grammar school in uh, Chapel Street there or South Yarra. So this particular was coming on the school holidays. Jackie had arranged to see her mum. Says they'll bring the kids over. They had a mansion out at Macedon that he also had. So the story goes that, uh, look, I took the kids to the mansion. I come home. Jackie uh, wasn't home. Uh, Her car was there. So I just grabbed the kids. We went to the mansion. I collected the kids. Jackie used to drop them off. That wasn't pre-planned goes to the uh, mansion in accident for the weekend, comes back, then doesn't go home, but just goes to his mother's place in South Melbourne with the children, has a Chinese meal, then he goes home a day later, finds that Jack is missing, there's a suitcase missing, etc. Um, oh well, she's buddy out there seeing men um, and thought nothing more of it. does he then? the fact that he he says that she's run away with a lover does he stop her credit cards no does he close any bank accounts no he does nothing at all so it goes on eventually a nun who's been looking after Jackie reports her missing and it goes on from there and uh we just couldn't prove it we had no body uh but we got to a stage we did forensic examination for a week at Messed and Ranges this guy was a bird watcher at Werribee. uh Sewage farm. Go bird watching there. I was able to charge. His, he had an off called Drobus. His marriage was on the rocks too. And then we end up doing a warrant at his place. We found a pistol, but nothing to compare it with. So he charged me with possessed pistol. But never found the body. But we got to a stage where we had some good circumstantial evidence with the family violence. Then I engaged a um, divorce lawyer to say okay, and uh, I did a financial profile on on. Slavic Ramsion, and they, I said I wanted to know to motive what would Jackie have got from the their marriage, so that was the motive. So I could prove a motive that no way name was Slavic Ramson going to share his his millions with her, and she was going to leave him. So best thing, kill her, get rid of her, and who knows where she is. So after about five years, we had I had the case come back and charged him with it. Their defence was basically, how do you know she has a off with a lover? Well, she wouldn't leave her her, her mother. She was devoted to her mother. She was devoted to her children. Now, the fact that she's away, why hasn't she come forward after all these years to reclaim her her, her kids, to live with her her, her mother? Nothing at all.
0: And she hasn't touched any of the bank accounts. So these days we'd say bank accounts, you know, mobile phones and that, but there were no mobile phones. But she hasn't touched any of the money.
3: Exactly. And and he beat me a committal and the DPP looked at it and said, well, you know what, they'll put that up as a defence. The jury will probably buy it and uh, not, not convict him. Our chances of conviction are, are low. We're not going to directly present him. He eventually died. He got cancer. And then the, if ever we find a body, the only way we, could, we can identify, because she had silicon Im- implants, and the implants have got serial numbers, so you can identify basically straight away. So one day, whether our friendly bushwalkers will ever find a body, I don't know. I remember a mother, she rang me up, and she was devastated. She said, I want to meet you, Charlie. I said, oh, no worries. So I picked her up at the Flinders um, Street railway station. She caught a train in. And then we drove around. Anyway, she said, I want you to have this. Gave me an envelope and had $1,000 in it. And I, I, I said, I can't accept that. We're not allowed to. da, 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 da. And she, she just left it on the car and it jumped out of the car and then off she went. And I, I had to declare it. But that's how grateful she was about the amount of work we put in
0: I can understand that. I can understand feeling like, how can you ever repay someone? And for certain people of a certain generation, you just think, oh no, cash? You know, like, I don't know how you can ever repay anybody for putting in that much work.
3: Exactly. You tell them, now, this is what we do. You know, this is, you know, it's unfortunate. And they know you put it in 120%. And you say, well, because we're emotionally involved as much as you are, you know, and we own it. We've got ownership. The DPP doesn't. We do. We're the ones dealing with the witnesses. and uh, and the families. We're the ones sitting in their lounge rooms, you know, after the murder of their loved one and trying to convince them that we're going to do our damnedest to try and bring someone to justice and, you know, represent, you know, you're supportive of the family and you you do take it to heart, but you can't become too emotionally involved because then you become an ineffective investigator. You learn from it and then you say, you know what, next time I'm going to cover off on that.
0: It just occurred to me when you were talking about giving evidence and And I'm imagining the courtroom and the pressure that's on you. And it sort of goes into the more I talk to you and and other police, the more I realise your workload, the number of facets that it entails, you know, because unfortunately every day a new case lands on your desk or every couple of days, but you're still working on older cases. It takes years to get them to court. Every case entails the crime scene, yep. the hours and days with the family, the um, post mortem. There's so much work. And then when you go to court, do you remember your first, the first time you had to give evidence in court? Were you nervous about that part of it, standing up in front of everyone, giving evidence, being cross-examined? And what sort of training do you get for that?
3: Well, you don't get much training. Now, when I went through, and it's even worse now, like you, you do mock courts at the academy. So okay, you come in and give evidence, and but you you know that's it's not true to life. You, you try and make it, but then you, you as a young constable you cut your teeth on you're doing your first arrest, drunk and disorderly. You, you lock up a drunk, and there's a process. You know you give evidence, and then and you start learning. And this is where I suppose apprenticeship starts, even to this day. But unfortunately, now they've got the mention system where a lot of coppers don't give evidence in the early stages of their career. And they don't get that court experience. And then that affected me because, not affected me personally, but when I was a, a, a homicide investigator, I would then go to a young constable and say, okay, you were the first on scene, you found the body. Okay, I want you to give me a statement. Well, what do you want in it? I said, well, put everything in it. And then they're very tenuous because they have not got that experience about being involved in any major crime. And then they're called to the Supreme Court. So they've bypassed, they never give evidence in the magistrates' court. Here they are in the Supreme Court and the whole enormity. And a, a good defence barrister is going to attack a junior constable because they know that they don't have court experience. And so they try and get that weak link and mucked up um, and even trying to tell these young members and say, well, I want you to put everything in a statement. Hearsay the whole lot. Oh, we're taught not to put hearsay in. I said, I understand that, but I want you to put what you thought, what you saw, what you heard, and all this stuff. Put it all in there, and the, it'll be the job of the barristers to censor what they're not going to make admissible. And at times, hearsay evidence is permissible when the defence says, I've got no objections, and they'll let that evidence in.
0: Can you remind us, what, what is hearsay evidence?
3: Well, hearsay evidence it is uh, something that someone's heard in the absence of any corroborative evidence. You know, to say, well, oh, Michelle told me that uh, she saw this red car. Well, that's hearsay evidence because it's not said in the presence of an accused person or that type of thing. It's, what well, while it might, uh, I can take a statement to that effect, they'll just say, well, it's hearsay because it's something that's either she saw, but how is that corroborated in that, in that regard and carries little weight? But it might be significant. Exactly. So, but I say, and I was, you know, from your experience in well, different court matters, I was told at a, uh, coroner's inquest one day, uh, that it's not the role of the police to censor statements. It's the role of the barristers to do that. The, the underlining issue for, for us is, and I quote uh, two things. People say, what's in an investigation? An investigation is to search for the truth in interest of justice in accordance with the specifications of the law. And secondly, what we are as investigators is the collectors of facts. We collect the facts, whether inculpates or exculpates an accused, we present all those facts to the court, and it's the court's role to prove innocence or guilt, not ours. We just collect the facts and present it. Policing is simple. Good guy catches bad guy, takes him to court. The complexities come in about now of how a trial is in, about that admissibility. Oh, that's that's prejudicial. We won't let that in. That's, that's hearsay evidence. We won't let that in. We can't do this. And that's where the complexities start to say, well, and you know, I start censoring the interview. Oh, this is something that might be uh, taken as prejudicial by a jury person. And they're treating juries like uh, imbeciles. And they'd say, well, let them make their own decision. And no one sits in there trying to guide the jury about how they should be deliberating. And they come back with different questions of you know, even coming back and say, well, on Honor, we've got a question. What is it? Can you explain to us what reasonable doubt is? And you shake your head and you say, well, and and all he can do, because the judge is mindful about what directions because it goes to an appeal, you are all intelligent people. I'm not going to give you an explanation of what beyond reasonable doubt is. A reasonable doubt. You look at the the words and you're intelligent enough, go away, and you make your own decisions on, on what that phrase means. And that's why inquisitorial, under coronial investigations, inquisitorial, no rules of evidence all the evidence goes in and they can be the judge. But unfortunately, uh, the adversarial system is what they call the adversarial system under the system we work under, becomes pristine, becomes um, evidence of we can't lead this, we can't lead that. So
0: so the adversarial system, our system is basically to find a winner, isn't it? Correct. We have to declare a winner. Correct. Whereas the inquisitorial system, which is the system that's used in some other countries and also our
3: coronial system is to establish the truth. Correct. And the truth comes from well, everything. Well, why should the jury be not made aware of that evidence? Because no, no they're silly. They cannot make up their mind and discount that from their mind. So we've got to do it for them. They get that direction by the judge at the very start. You are here to judge this case on what you see and hear in this courtroom you are not to conduct your own investigation, you are not to go to the crime scene, you are not to do any of that. So how can you stop a person going back and googling Charlie bazina's name as a crook? Oh shit, he's been done this before. You're not going to stop that.
0: Or as you said, on social media, you know, it's virtually, it's not impossible, but it's really close to impossible, to not look at social media, encounter it in your life. And if it's a really huge case to see a tweet or see a a post about it somewhere. Correct.
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
4: Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. If
2: you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
0: In the case of Stuart Fairley, the RSPCA inspector, so he was called to a farm in Mortlake over a case of alleged cruelty to horses. He, he was sent out there to investigate that and six days later his body was found in a shallow grave around that area, not on the property.
3: Ten, 10 kilometres away from the suspect farm?
0: So how long did you work on, on that brief? How long was that entire investigation for you to not get a conviction?
3: Well, realistically, because the trial went for about...
0: Because that happened in, what, 89?
3: Yeah, went, went for about a month or so. So we would be um, a week down at Warnable, come home for the weekend. Week down at Warnable, come home for the weekend. But leading up to the investigation, I found a week later, and then we could prove that uh, his alibi was not right because he said... He left here at 12.30, and if someone else has killed him, I don't know anything about it. But when we found the body, 10 kilometres up the road from where he lived, there was another grave with a a camera and a a, a, a film in there, a half-written interview that stopped abruptly, and uh, he said he left here at 12.30. And then one of my enterprising detectives said, we can get a, let's process the film, which we did, as a picture of a horse on his property. We could show it was on his property. And then we had a brilliant idea of going to the Melbourne University to get a surveyor and an astronomer. And from the shadows that were cast by this fence, they were able to give us a time that that photograph was taken plus or minus five minutes at one thirty-five or 1.30, oh. which discounted what the accused were saying. So based on that alone, we then charged him and um, we led all that evidence, not guilty.
0: Did you ever get to the bottom of why, or do you even bother? No,
3: not allowed to. It's a crime. You can't, you can't question a juror. It's, it's against the law to speak to, unlike America, where they get interviewed by the media in certain states. Yeah. What was your deliberations? And it's the same with, with Hooksy, David Hooks. David
0: Hooks was an Australian cricket player, coach, and commentator. On a night out with players in 2004, he got into an altercation with security staff outside the Beaconsfield Hotel in St Kilda. Hooks was punched in the fracas and hit his head hard on the road when he fell. He never regained consciousness and was taken off life support the following morning. Charlie Bazina led the homicide investigation that followed.
3: Here I had strong evidence to say it wasn't self-defence. Yet they come back with an acquittal on the manslaughter and the common assault. And I say, well, what the freak? And sometimes you can see the bewilderment in the judge's face. <laughs> you know, they look up and you're saying, where'd that come from? And I thought I'd lose the manslaughter because of the. It's different now with the um, one punch manslaughter. We didn't have to prove um, a, a dangerous act. Had, it, had I had that, I probably would got. But I think the jury, in acquitting him on everything, they looked at the persona of David Hooks being a loudmouth. Uh, he was probably pissed.
0: And also they had that kid, Zavko, as you said, and he was, he was a nice kid and he was sitting there with his lovely family and he was sitting there and every apologetic, day.
3: apologetic. He wanted to apologise yeah. and so his family. But even a common assault. I charged him with common assault. They even get acquitted him on that based on none of the evidence showed that, that uh, Hooksy, his defence was... This guy grabbed me by the shirt, pulled me down, punched me in the abdomen, and I then punched him back. Even his own fellow bouncers, not one witness, supported that, yet they acquitted.
0: Did you ever read that chapter in my book? If not, I've got to bring it for you because I took ages writing the chapter about Hooksy and... I compared through all the court reports and media reports all the witnesses. It's an exercise in memory really. It's fascinating comparing all of their memories of what happened because they're all watching the same event from their balconies and their windows, but how they remember it differently. Correct. It's really interesting. Yeah, and
3: you taught that and they do that exercise when we do in detective training school. I need to hone in on you about the different perceptions of different witnesses seeing the same thing.
0: Yeah. You know, this bloke says, I, I swear I saw him turn around and say this to this bloke, and then she says no, he didn't say anything, and then, you know, it's fascinating.
3: That's why you got to separate them. One of the big issues with witnesses, you got to get separated because one will adulterate mm-hmm. the other. And so all of a sudden you got to, look, I think it was a blue car, no, look, it wasn't a blue. It was a more, more beige It was more this, oh, do you think so? Mm, okay. Yeah, I'll go beige oh, And then you convince them to go, that's why you've got to separate witnesses.
0: And it's all those last couple of seconds on that street. It's fascinating. I think there's about 16 witness statements and hardly two of them
3: that are the same. Correct, exactly. And that, and that, that confuses the jury. So then how does the jury interpret it with their different life skills? And that's where you, you then do tell your witnesses, look, look at the jury when they're giving evidence. Keep the same tone of voice, because as you know, they'll look at it. If you're not looking them in the eye when they get a question, you, you drop your tone of voice and you drop your gaze to the floor. They know you're lying. You've got to be confident in what you're saying, and that's where you know it's good. You try and put the barristers off, and there's little techniques you do. And professional, the good barristers don't worry him, but they talk to the side of your face, mm. and you're looking at the jury and the judge.
0: But again, you can't teach that to a witness in five seconds. No, you
3: can't, because human nature, is, you want to talk, look at the person you're talking to. Yeah. But you're trying to put them off a bit. So there is games that we all play, and and then you're trying to think about, without being too smart and being chastised by the judge, The barrister will jump up there and say, you didn't go down that laneway, you went there and you did this, and they make a statement. And you sit there mute. Well? Well, what? Is that a question? Yes, it is. I thought it was a statement. Are you asking me or telling me? And all of a sudden, so you've got to listen to the question and say, well, there's no question there, and you sort of remain mute. And then all of a sudden, then they, they're Indians and then sometimes you get embarrassed them. But you've got to be careful. You don't know, get chastised by the judge and say, well, don't be a smart-ass bazoona, but uh, you got you got to pick your mark. <laughs> pick your mark. And the jury sometimes have a bit of a chuckle
0: you have a great way of, I suppose, because you're so used to talking to juries. At the end of the day, you've got to tell people like me and my neighbour and my school mums, and it's the jury. Yeah,
3: and you've got to talk in plain language. And that's where, you know, talking to the media and that stuff, You don't talk police jargon. You've got to simplify it down to the the normal person to understand and, you know, the, the medical terminology for everything, oh, and the scapula and that, well, hang on, what's a scapula? Oh, that's a shoulder blade. Two hardest degrees to get... Is your medical degree and law degree the two of the most? So our pathologists have a law degree and a medical degree. They get a law degree because they need to know the understandings of of the law process because they're giving evidence so much. Um, so they're highly qualified people, um, and they never stop learning. Also with uh, with what's required of them, and you know we have conferences with them, and even getting back to the relationships with witnesses. And you said earlier about the amount of involvement that we have as as the informant. So prior to trial starting, what happens is we get a a list from the prosecutor. Okay, Charlie, for the first day of the trial, I want these 15 witnesses. Okay, I want them in this order, and I'll have this. We often do the doctors and specialist people first um, because of their um, involvement with different things, um, with their own personal businesses and stuff. Prior to the week before the trial starts, I'm ringing up these 15 witnesses. Can you come to court? That's your job. That's my job. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's my job.
0: I suppose I don't know who I thought it would be, but I thought there'd be some assistant somewhere or someone. No,
3: you're wow. it. This is what I'm just saying. That's just the start of it. Because prosecutors lose sight of the fact that witnesses have lives. They, they, You can't demand it. Now, I've had some prosecutors, some arrogant ones, say, well, if they don't come, I'm going to take out a warrant for their arrest. They don't have a relationship with the witnesses we have. So you try and balance it and say, you know what, okay, I'll try and work around that, or I've got a job interview on that day, or I'm doing a HSC exam, I'm doing this, and, okay, I balance it. I go back to the prosecutor and say, look, this is the order we can do it in because they got this, they got this, and we've got to work around it, or oh, I've got a witness overseas. Then I've got to arrange a video link up in their time to our video people here, etc., cetera, et cetera. So that's okay. So come on Monday morning. My first lot of morning witnesses come along. I sit with them and I greet them at court. We sit down with them. And then I start preparing them. Okay, guys, you're going to give evidence. Now, this is what's happened. I then try and talk to them at the court and say that when they go in, this is the explain the layout inside the court. Now, you're going to get questioned. The first personal question was a prosecutor. He'll lead you through the evidence. You don't have to memorize it. But if you don't know the answer to a question, say, I don't know what the answer is. I don't understand the question. Or ask them to repeat it. But be short. Don't give monologues. Just say yes, no as best you can. And be honest as you can. Don't guess questions except so you prepare your witnesses.
0: God, and some of them would be so nervous. They would never have spoken in... direct. Well, I mean, most people hate speaking in public. So,
3: And, 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 and this is the games you then play. I've had incidences where... I've had a, a um, I'm not saying the female was different, but this particular lady was giving evidence and we had the luncheon adjournment. And she was quite nervous. And I know, you know the games that they play because you have experienced. So I know that the defence had got spies. They got their clerks out in the foyer. So this lady finished giving evidence and then I took her aside in the foyer quite openly and said, look, you're doing really well. Give them the support. You're doing well. Just keep telling the truth. Reiterating, don't guess questions, don't guess answers. If you don't know, da 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 da. And sure enough, come back at two o'clock. The defence jump up. Oh, Your Honour, there's a matter that I want to bring to your attention in the absence of the jury. Oh, okay. What's that? Well, in the luncheon adjournment, Your Honour, we saw Mr. Bazina speaking to the witness, who's partly giving evidence.
0: Accused you of coaching it.
3: Correct. Correct. Yeah. Or putting things in her mind, or telling her answer questions. Okay, uh, Mr. Sorensen, okay, call Mr. Bazina. Can you jump the witness box? Yep, Sway yourself in. Okay, what was that all about? Well, you Honor, She was so nervous, I was supporting her. All I said to her was try and support it, and they can call her and give it. What did Charlie say to you? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. anything else, Mr. Brown? No. Okay, thank you, Your Honour. And that's the games they play. Yeah. But I'm not going to walk around. This woman's going to hop off the, the elevated witness stand Walk out and I'm going to ignore her and walk out and not say anything to her. She's going to say, what the fuck?
0: I know. When she's been looking at you as a support, when you're the bloke who rang her up and asked her to come. I'm
3: the one in a relationship with her.
0: Because most of us don't know, yeah, you you know, we don't know the rules and we don't know all these little quirky things about coaching and all that. And it would make her so much more nervous and possibly upset.
3: And she might leave. Yeah, I'm on my own here. And that's what I did with the cricketers, with Hooksy. I took the Australian cricket team, the the, the groups that were there as witnesses, into the Mm. Supreme Court a week or so before that. And I said, it was empty. The court was empty. I said, guys, this is this, this is that. Explain it to them and as best you can to make them feel comfortable because you gave them a new environment. But, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with this environment. So you do as much to put them at ease. Then, so all those witnesses you've arranged that day give evidence. Okay, Your Honor, we're um, we're going to um, adjourn for the day. And we're back tomorrow morning. I then go and sit with the solicitor and the prosecutor and I get another list. Charlie, these are the witnesses you want for tomorrow. So I then finish at 4, thirty, five 5 o'clock at court. I then go back to my office and spend the evening ringing up all these witnesses to prepare them, get them for tomorrow. And that goes in day in, day out. I'm the one that prepares them. The way witnesses are treated and the prosecutions, I'd say to the prosecutor, look, can you sit down and have a chat with her before the trial starts? No. Well, before she gives evidence? No, I won't. And, I, and, and all this next year, you know, this stranger is asking you questions. And I say, well, no, he's the good guy. And that's the problem. We have the relationship, and then we are the ones dealing with them. They don't care. And it goes on. sometimes you get disappointed that the, because the prosecutors are dealing with so many briefs of evidence, all they may have read of the case is the summary. And they don't. And sometimes I've come out with things about a witness, and that it's completely different. And you know then, you haven't read the, the statement, have you? You've been juggling that many jobs. You haven't read the statement, have you? Oh, no, I'm going off a summary. Well, the summary's a summary. It doesn't go the ins and outs of this. And you've got no idea about this witness.
0: And so I say again, at, this, at the same time you're doing this, you're also in the middle of however many other cases, investigations. Yeah,
3: that I'm overseeing with my other detectives and that type of thing. Exactly. And the investigation doesn't stop the fact you've charged somebody or gone to trial or the trials commence because investigations, even during the trial, I've gone and interviewed witnesses again or found out new witnesses that have come forward. And then you've got to declare them. That postpones the trial proceedings because what happens then is if new evidence is then identified quite innocently by the prosecution and likewise for the defense, they have an opportunity to look at that new evidence, adjourn the case. And then be able to say, well, we're either going to challenge it or it's not admissible or whatever the case, whatever argument's going to be. So the investigation is still a live investigation throughout the whole trial, right until the verdict.
0: When do you have to have your complete list of witnesses? Like, can you still be adding them as the trial's going, like they do on TV?
3: You can, as long as you declare them. You must declare them. And they it's unlike it's the movies where you say, you know what? I've got this witness here. It's going to be a damning witness. I'm not going to put that on the on the brief of evidence. I'm going to hold this witness back and I'll declare it when the trial starts to try and catch the defence short. That is a big no-no. You cannot do that. The only time you can introduce new evidence, during the trial, someone comes forward. They've read about in the paper. Oh, look, Charlie, at the time, I didn't want to speak to anybody, but now I'm happy to come forward. That's quite legitimately. And we are, have to declare that to It might be against, what, prosecution? It might be against my case, but I'm the collector of the facts. I've now got an alibi witness to say, well, Charlie, I didn't come forward, but uh, Dave, the accuser, was with me that night. I'm going to say, shit, that hurts me, but I then have to take a statement off that one, give it to my prosecutor. The prosecutor then gives it to the defence. They then go to court in the absence of the jury and declare it to the judge and say, this is the circumstances that this new witness has come forward. It's quite legitimate. There's nothing, no shenanigans by the prosecution, but here it is here, and then they will impose that witness or they argue it and say the admissibility. Yes, we'll accept it. Okay, that's, that person's put on the witness list. And people don't realise is prior to trial starting, the defence get the complete hand-up brief of evidence. They get every skerrick of evidence that we will be alleging against that accused person. That's served on the accused through uh, their lawyer, and they go through with a fine-toothed cone, looking for the Achilles' heel. Where are our weaknesses? Now, I, when my detectives or I do a brief of evidence, we go through it and scrutinise every bit of it. We look at any weaknesses ourselves. And I go to a crime scene, and I'm, I'm in defence mode. I'm thinking like a defence barrister. What should I cover off? What should I do this? I remember that from my experience that comes in. And how do I shear up uh, and and run every rabbit down this burrow going to trial? To, because if I don't, i back it in a, a competent defence barrister will. There, there's a routine that a defence barrister will take a beheading they're going to question. And you might think everything's okay. You were in a false sense of security. All of a sudden, bang, the edge with the one question. They close all the gates. You've got nowhere to go. So an It's art.
0: fascinating, isn't it? And they'll ask these like really seemingly unimportant, these short yeah. little questions yeah. that, like you said, see, seems like it's kind of it's, everything's cool. And then you realise, oh my god, they were stitching it up from yeah, the beginning. I've
3: got nowhere to go. You know, I can't sort of say. But you said earlier, ABC and a good, competent defence barrister, they earn their money. You know, when they get complexities about doing, we present all this forensic evidence, and they got to get their head around, understand it completely. And they might get their own defence forensic evidence that could go contrary to that. They're talking like a pathologist. They're using the right terminology. They're this and that. Very, very clever people.
0: That is something that the forensic pathologists still talk about, Charlie. All these years after your retirement, they still talk about the fact that their conversations with you during an autopsy were at a very high level of language. Literally, like they were able to speak to you like a pathologist. Yeah. They didn't have to explain things, dumb things down to you. They could talk to you like another pathologist, yeah. which
3: they really enjoyed. And I enjoyed learning. When all said and done, we are the investigators. You know, I'd go to a post mortem and. They got their expertise, but at the end of the day, I'm at the Supreme Court. I'm the one who's being challenged. You're leading the investigation, the same as with forensic examiners when they go to a crime scene. You know they'll always write out on, on something they've missed out on. Let's say a crime scene examiner doesn't do something. Well, he gets cross-examined, or he or she, and say, "Well, why do not you do that?" Oh, Mr. Bazin never told me to, and all this stuff. And then I get give evidence. So I get a lamppost up my backside of saying, well, why are not you tell me to do that? Well, he knows his job, but with a post-mortem, you know, there's a process you go through when a post-mortem might take five, six hours, depending on the complexities of the wounds, et cetera, et cetera. But I can then say, you know what, I know the investigation. Look, can you take a a, a swab or do an examination of this particular part of the body if the pathologist hasn't been to the scene? That's why it's so important even to get the pathologist at the crime scene, and then he'd look at me, the pathologist, and say, Well, anything else you want me to do? So they are an aid to our investigation. And basically, I'm the one dictating what I want from my experience from previous uh, other postmortems that I've done and constantly learning. But you are driving the investigation at a postmortem, at a crime scene, at an interview, and that type of thing. And it's up to you uh, then to dictate which direction it takes. And then ultimately, you know, we learn and. Uh, you know, and that's the ownership you've got. You're the one with ownership. You're the one that's going to get reamed and say, well, why didn't you do that? You're leading the investigation. Oh, I never thought of it. And everyone will write out, because you are ordered out of court, everyone will write out on your back because it's easy. And say, oh, well, why didn't you do that, Mr. Frenzy Examiner? Oh, I wasn't asked to. Why didn't you fingerprint that particular? Oh, I wasn't asked to. And then you get reamed. You walk in, not knowing what's happened, what's been cross-examined. next thing you know, bang, you cop it all.
0: God the responsibility is unbelievable. Thank you to our friend, the one and only Charlie Bazina. He'll be back with us in coming weeks. So please contact us through social media if you have any specific questions you'd like him to answer. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 92 76 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
4: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business.
0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.